Hi, everyone, and welcome to the No Low Ballers podcast. I'm Logan Maddish of High Caliber History, your host, and I'm joined around the table by a great group of folks here. We've got Derek from Go Wild, Chris from Houndsman XP Podcast, and Rick from Gobbler Knob Long Rifles. This is going to be a really cool episode because we are talking uh, the frontier time period, and we're talking about uh, different firearms and hunting techniques and, and all sorts of interesting stuff that you might not necessarily think about. Um, so, guys, really appreciate you for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having yep, me. Yep. Absolutely. For sure. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So uh, when we talk frontier time period, uh, obviously there's certain things that kind of ping in your mind. And, and one of those has got to be flintlock rifles. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And and not only are they beautiful guns, but they are um, in, incredibly more efficient than we give them credit for today. You know, I mean, we're going around... How, Who's, who here's hunted with a flintlock? Okay. Yeah, well. Those two. You. Okay, and I've done it too. So, yeah. so, all right, so three out of four. But you know what? That That's an anomaly, right? You know, most right. most people are, are not in that kind of a situation. Um, and so you go back a couple hundred years, and that's what everyone's hunting with because that's all they've got. And and Rick, you've you've got a, an interesting perspective that you can lend to us because in addition to hunting with flintlocks, you also make flintlocks yes yep so talk to us a little bit about how you got into that your inspiration and how it's impacted your hunting sure so i grew up in uh, rural northeast pennsylvania and uh, when i was a young teenager my dad introduced me to the frontiersman by alan w eckert and that is a historical <laughs> novel uh, that was written um, in the in the mid to late 1700s there the entire series takes place during that time period and I became so enamored with that with that lifestyle and, and uh, the guns from that period that uh, I decided one day I wanted to be a, a maker of those guns. And uh, in 2000, I did. My dad, my dad got me a kit for Christmas in 1979, I think. And it was a CBA mountain rifle. And I put that together and uh, harvested a deer with that four, year, or, uh, four days later. And, oh, wow. Yep. And I was bitten by the bug. Was it percussion or was it a flint? It was a flint. Yeah. Yeah. CBA Mountain Rifle was the name. And I still have that gun. That was going to be my question. Yes, (laughs) I still have it. I killed a lot of deer with that gun. Uh, My... Both of my sons killed deer with that gun, and uh, yeah, it's in it's in my shop right now. But anyway, that was uh, that was my start, and in 2000, I uh, I started making them, and here it is, 23 years later, and I'm still going strong. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and we've got a couple guns on the table here that yes. that you have made, um, and they're both very different guns. Right. So um, you know, talk to us a little bit about the the two pieces okay. that we've got here. Both of these guns uh, would have appeared on the colonial frontier in that time period that we're talking about, the late 1700s. And uh, this particular gun is, is a smoothbore. It's, it's a 20-gauge or 62 caliber. And uh, the architecture of this gun uh, is called New England. It's a New England Fowler. And uh, it's got an octagon a shape to the barrel here, and then it transitions at the wedding band to a smooth round barrel all the way out to the end. And uh, it has a, a large round-faced flint lock and brass furniture and a curly cherry stock. This this gun here is a 1770s era uh, 50 caliber flintlock rifle 
curly maple stock. Some people call that tiger maple, but it's it, the real name is curly maple. It has a 42-inch long octagonal barrel, and like I said, it, it's rifled in 50 caliber, and it has a brass lock plate, uh, flint lock that's highly engraved, and it has sights, and it's an extremely accurate gun. How how deep do we want to go into this? Do we want to talk, what style of rifle is this? What, okay, so yeah. thank, that's yeah, a good question. That's a Thanks. very good question. Yeah. A lot thank, of different schools. Yes, there are, and that's that's exactly what they what they are. They're called schools, and uh, this is from uh, the the Lancaster School of the Long Rifle. The architecture is unique to that particular school, and how they get their name is gunmakers from a particular area, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, for instance made those guns, and that's how they looked if they came from that area. So 200 years from then, you could look at a gun and say, oh, that's a Lancaster school. Another way you can tell is by the maker's signature would, would have been engraved here on the on the barrel flat. That, of course, is my name because I made that gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's interesting in the in the different regions and the different schools that you get, it like you're saying, you can identify them from that. It's how things have have grown up and localized in that it's kind of like a dialect today like mm-hmm. you know you can tell someone who's from tidewater virginia versus some of the new york city right. and you know and it's interesting that that it's all just locally influenced things right. that pick up you know the gun's still going to do the same thing um, but but you've got all these different stylings depending on where they're made and I don't know um, if you're familiar with the term of Kentucky long rifle. You've probably all heard that. Mm-hmm. That's actually a misnomer. The Kentucky long rifle is actually a Pennsylvania long rifle. Mm-hmm. The settlers, as they moved west, brought their guns with them, of course, and or took their guns with them. And uh, uh, when they settled in Kentucky, that's that's how that got its name. They're actually Pennsylvania long ri- rifles, but they, they're frequently called Kentucky long rifles. Yeah, it depended on, like, in 1750, the United States wasn't even a country yet. We were right. all immigrants at that point. So, you know, you get into these, you can look at different styles of long rifles and find out a lot about where that person came from because you'll see remnants of German makers like the Jaeger that came, yes. you know, from Germany and yep. Swiss rifles and Finn rifles, and, and they brought all those styles that with them because they they came to the new new world and they started building rifles here so when you get down to virginia uh in that appalachic culture a lot of german a lot of scotch irish you know and you start seeing all these styles melding together into what is the american long rifle and, and chris you make a good point there so when these guns first appeared on the american frontier uh, they were a lot of them were from German uh, immigrants, and the Jaeger mm-hmm. was uh, was a primary uh, source. And uh, as you can see, the the German Jaeger uh, from the 1740s, 1750s, during the French and Indian War into the 1760s, they were much shorter and they were heavier, they mm-hmm. were clubbier. Yep. You can see that neither one of these are that way, especially this this rifle right here. Mm-hmm. This gun would have been considered uh, uh, from the um, golden age of the Pennsylvania long rifle, which is generally considered to be 1775 through 1820. And then when you get past the deeper into the 1820s, they transition from the flintlock to the percussion uh, ignition system. Now, some some flintlocks were were, uh, converted to percussion, but uh, from 
really around 1830 and on, it was all straight percussion guns. Yeah, and the ignition systems are interesting to me because the the flintlock, really, of all the different ignition systems that we've had through history, the flintlock has the longest uh, shelf life, I guess, as you would say, you know, the longest lifespan of, of its usefulness, you know, even though percussion was leaps and bounds in terms of uh, the the simplicity of the use over the flintlock, it enjoys just a relatively short period of time before we start getting into right. actual cartridges right. and coming into what we have today. So I think there's, there's People something... People realize that nipples belonged on ri- women, not on rifles. <laughs> <laughs> And it was, there's it came came to came to light real quick. I like it, and yep. there, there's the meme we're gonna have for this episode. So we try to get we try to get at least one for every episode, and that that Alan and I both thank you that it doesn't have to be one of us. So. <laughs> and here's here's the thing about the flintlock ignition. You're you're 100 correct. This thing has been around for you know several hundred years, and there's a reason for that. It works. Yep. It's reliable. If it ain't broke, don't fix That's it. That's right. That's why Pennsylvania has its own flintlock season it's it's dedicated to the flintlock rifle and uh, i don't know if if there are any other states that have that but pennsylvania was unique and they developed their own uh, it's not a, it's not a muzzleloader season it's a flintlock season interesting yeah. i did not know yes. that yeah. yeah you cannot hunt with a with an inline you cannot hunt with a percussion gun during that flintlock season which is december the 26th unless that falls on a sunday because mm-hmm. there's no sunday hunting for deer in pennsylvania um, uh, and runs for two weeks after that. So Pennsylvania does have an early muzzleloader season where you can use percussion guns or inline guns, but uh, I believe it's antlerless only. And uh, uh, But you can kill either sex in the flintlock season in Pennsylvania. Interesting. I've been hunting almost exclusively with these two guns ever since I made them. I made this rifle in 2018 and this Fowler in 2020. But uh, I've hunted almost exclusively with a with a black powder gun for gosh 20 years 30 years i I just i love it i love the romanticism about it and i just i just love it so chris that that kind of brings us to something that i that i want to talk about specifically with you yeah um you mentioned you've hunted with flintlocks have you hunted with your dogs with flintlocks well that's interesting you ask that yes uh the there's a whole culture out there that i became involved in uh, called period hunting, you know, right. where you take a time period and you try to match all your gear, all everything to that. And, and at, at the time that I was heavily involved in that, then I was also hunting with uh, the mountain cur breed or what would have been familiar to and available to the mountain hunters of, of like Virginia, 1750s Virginia. Okay. So it would have been a more of a, of a historical type dog that that's still thriving today so you know we squirrel hunted and and hunting was different in uh the 1750s than than what it is today we have specific seasons for things whereas uh the average mountain hunter or long hunter that traveled over the mountains into the kentucky cane lands and all that stuff Mm -hmm. they brought their dogs with them for a variety of things they brought them with them for security for companionship and also to produce game so some of the early depictions on powder horns and drawings and different things show people firing at deer with a dog chasing it 
and you know just the the dog and that was a, a por- an important part of the culture at the time so yeah, yeah i've spent uh, some nights out there huddled under a blanket with a dog you know right and some of our primitive encampments where we would we would trek into these these places and and hump for a few days with limited food and and what you killed is what you ate and you know it's a little trickier because you've got to abide by the game laws and things like that sure. obviously but you know if you go during the right time of year and you got the right license uh it can you know you can have a pretty good variety everything from from waterfowl to squirrels to to you know all kinds of small game are you doing any trapping during that window as well? Because I mean, if you throw trapping in with that, and you're out there actually hunting in these areas with these these historic probably, dog breeds, and you're using you know rifles from that time period, I mean, if you throw trapping into the mix, you're you're doing it all. Yeah, you're living that life 100. Yeah. percent The, the yeah. only reason we didn't is because of uh, seasons. Maybe didn't parallel. It, it they would have paralleled okay. or they would have matched up, but it was really. Uh, how much gear are you taking? Are you taking pack yeah. animals? Are you coming in? Because right. most of the most of the people that hunted, especially through this region, the waterways and canoes and you know dugout canoes and flatboats and down cottonwood you know, trees and <coughs> absolutely. Out I mean, <laughs> yeah. so when you're talking about a weekend warrior thing, you know, you 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 run in with pretty light and your dog and you do what you do. Mm-hmm. Plus, I mean, the the whole trap design. It wouldn't it just wouldn't feel right setting a Victor coil spring or even a Victor long spring. Yeah, right. You know, to, when when everything was hand forged traps and things right. like that in the 1700s. So that's going to be the next thing for Gobbler Knob, right? You're going to start you doing go. making blacksmithing your own traps and stuff, right? Well, I, I don't know about traps, but I, <laughs> I do have a forge, and uh, I have made uh, a couple knives, and my intent is to produce patch knives and i've also started making 18th century turn screws because the screws and the bolts on these locks uh the the heads uh they're they're very narrow Mm -hmm. and uh, modern screwdrivers just unless you modify them they don't they don't work well so i decided uh, uh the architecture of those things really caught my eye and i said you know what i've got a forge i'm going to try making some yeah. and so i've started making them and uh, i offer them as as part of when a when a customer orders a gun from me i i provide one for them uh, for their use yeah. and there's a lot of artistry even in just something as simple as a turn screw because you posted on go wild yes. recently yep. some of the some of the ones you were making yep. and i mean they're beautiful works of art Thank just you. like the guns are works Thank of you. art too you know? i mean that's the signature on them alone it's so fitting because an artist are you doing all your own engraving and everything yep. Yep. yeah yep nice yeah i i actually uh i learned how to engrave mm, in the early 1990s i guess uh, i'm sorry early 2000s uh, i went to western kentucky university they they had a uh uh, uh, class there for engraving. So I traveled there from Pennsylvania and spent a week there to learn how to engrave. I don't use an, a, a power engraver. I use a, a graver and a hammer. Yep, yep. And I take I take a lot of pride in the fact that the the guns that I make are are largely produced by hand. Uh, the only the only power tools I use is a bandsaw to cut the initial. When I get the stock blank, I cut away the bulk of the waste wood. And then I use a drill press to, because the uh, pinholes uh, and the screw holes and bolt holes need to be plumb and square. Other than that, it's files, chisels, scrapers, and lots of elbow grease. Mm-hmm. It takes me a lot of, one of the most common questions I get is, how long does it take you to make one? When I started making these, uh, my, my very first one was a kit, of course, and uh, the first several were kits. And that, that I was 
I was ready to move forward on to doing them from scratch. Uh, the first one took me about 125, 130 hours, but a gun like this right now I can do in probably 30 to 40 hours. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I just made my first one a few months ago, and it was from a kit. Um, and, you know, and I, I – Rick has more talent in his pinky nail than I have, you know, in, in, in my entire body. And, uh, I mean, it took me a good while to do it, even from a kit. And, I mean, the gun turned out great, and that's more a testament yeah, to the kit maker gun. than to me. Thank you. Um, and I, I would love to get into being able to, to do what you do and making it from scratch. But I'm just like, uh, it would be faster for me to get a suppressor than it would be for me to make a gun. <laughs> I, you know? Honestly, you know, I know it's hard to believe, and it's easy for me to say uh, because I've been doing it for as long as I have, but it really isn't that difficult. Uh, it, to me, I, I compare it to, to putting together a, p, a, a jigsaw puzzle because the placement of each piece is dependent upon the placement of the piece before it. Mm -hmm. So I have a certain system that I use. I don't, I'm, I'm sure all gun makers have their own system, but the one that I use is I, I have the stock blank cut out the barrel. I inlet the uh, breech plug tang first, then I inlet the barrel lugs, uh, pin them, and then I inlet the trigger. I'm sorry, I inlet the lock after that. Then I inlet the trigger. Then I inlet the butt plate because the butt plate, the, the length of pull on the gun is determined where the, the distance between the trigger and the, and the butt plate. And then after that, then I rough the, the stock out to its near final uh, uh, profile. Then I'll do the uh, side plate and trigger guard and then finish sanding and scraping and then the stain goes on so it's it's a it's a it's a process but it's not very difficult one of the things that i've seen in in rifle builders new rifle builders is they they tend to leave too much wood yes you know they're everything's heavy yep. like through right. here and you can tell rick is taking the time to take all this down and it looks real bulky it'll be real it'll be real clunky in the wrist or or yep. somewhere and especially through this forearm right here mm -hmm. you know there's just too much wood on these sides and it's because the first couple you build right. you're scared to take too exactly. much off that's yep. and and i was there believe yep. me my first couple guns you could have used them as boat paddles <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you're you're 100 correct i was afraid i was going to take off too much yeah. yeah i have a stock blank in my shop today that i bought probably let's see 2003 2004 and it's walnut and uh i got to work on that and when i was using my bandsaw i cut off there was a lot of wood underneath of the forearm and i cut off and cut right into the ramrod channel oh. mm -hmm. and i stopped and my eyes got big and uh i glued it back together and i thought to myself now how did that happen well then i realized that if I drilled holes when the barrel's out, if I drilled a hole from the bottom of the barrel channel into the ramrod channel, I can re I can figure out how deep that ramrod channel is and mark that as a, on a uh, in a witness mark on the outside, and mm -hmm. then cut beneath that, and that'll never happen again. Mm -hmm. So I I have that stock hanging in my shop as, as a reminder. reminder. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. I, I thought you were going to say, you're like, I, I did that, and I got so scared of messing that stock up that I haven't touched it in 20 years. No. That's where I thought it was going. No, you know? <laughs> uh -uh. that's a good example of what not to do. There you go. Yeah. And, that, and that's what it's all about is yeah, trial absolutely. and error and, and learning. And I learned a ton even just in the kit that I made, you know. One of, one of the biggest things about flintlocks is they get a lot of bad rap or, you know, because we've, we've grown so far past them with this, you know, modern ammunition, but a properly tuned flintlock, 
And when you pull the trigger, there isn't a delay. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and especially if you shoot and you train yourself uh, to, to get accustomed to everything going on there, a, a flint lock that's well-tuned and well-taken care of is pretty pretty daggone reliable, and it's instant. Chris, that, that is, that's a great point you mm-hmm. bring out. Far too many hunters today. Hollywood's t- helped it, too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They, Boom. They put mm-hmm. too much powder in that pan. I have found, of course, you yes. know, each gun is going to be different, but I have found that all I need to do is put enough powder to cover the bottom of the pan, yep. and it's almost near instantaneous ignition. It's it's a sign. Have you ever ignited it, one without any powder in the pan? With just the spark? Yes. I have too. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I had cool. I had scars for a while to prove it. I was no. I was standing on the line at Friendship, and and uh, was shooting a match. And I wasn't getting good spark. I was having delayed reactions. So I, I napped the flint. And as you're napping the flint, you know, I cleared the pan and everything. Mm-hmm. And as you're napping the flint, you know, I'm standing there with the rifle pointed down range. And I pull it back and, and drop the hammer to see what kind of – and I was shading it. I was shading the lock mm-hmm. so uh-huh. I could see what kind of spark yep. I was getting. And when I did that, badoosh, it goes off and shot the unburned powder out into the the fatty part of my hand yep. right here just peppered it so for four or five days i was just picking <laughs> black pepper or powder out of my yeah. palm of my I, hand i've had guys tell me that they will they will pack powder into the touch hole and they don't realize that they're they're you're creating a block exact that's exactly yep. right so i uh i had a guy just uh day before yesterday ask me if he should uh um, fire a pan of powder without a main charge in it to clear that i said no take a pick you know, yes. Invest in a pick, and pick after every time you load that mm-hmm. gun, and you will never have a problem with a mm-hmm. misfire, as it relates to that. Now, flint's a different story. If your flint is dull, you might you might not get it to uh, ignite. But you have know, you got liners? Do you have I do. stainless liners I, I in do. your barrels? Yes, which yep. are all manufactured with a cone going towards yes. the interior of the barrel anyway, so the powder is supposed yep. to pack in there. We're only talking. You know, just a fraction, a fraction yeah. of an inch, like that, a millimeter, two millimeter, yeah, or something, where that's so available I, to the spark yeah so something that i've started doing probably 10 years ago uh when i started using these stainless steel liners is uh i don't know what size they come to me from from the manufacturer but i drill out the hole to 1 16th that's yep. the drill bit that i use that's just a, probably one size larger than than when it when it comes mm-hmm. But I find that that increase or uh, decreases my ignition time as well. Hmm. Yeah. So those, you know, these are all things that, uh, as a as a flintlock owner, you need to figure these things out. You can't yeah. you can't just dump powder in there and you know hope to to score with it. Do you are you priming? What are you priming with? Good question. So, I started out many years ago, like everybody probably, uh, priming with 4F, mm-hmm. and uh, then I charged with 2F. Well, over the years, I've discovered that uh, 3F ignites just as quick as 4F, yep. and 3F uh, for the main charge is... Can go in the barrel. Exactly. Yeah. You can <laughs> prime, shoot, load and prime out of the same horn. Exactly. That's exactly what the, the Frontiersmen yep. did. They didn't yep. carry priming horns. That was a, an invention of friendship. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I've, for many years, I've been shooting just 3F. And, uh, you know, everybody says, well, what kind of powder? You know, I use Go-X. boom. Yeah. I use Go-X. <laughs> and that's, that's another, that's a good point. Many people who are misinformed or uninformed altogether think that you can use Pyrodex or something like that. And mm-hmm. you cannot use yeah. a black powder substitute in a flintlock. You can in a percussion, but not in a flintlock because that ignites at a much higher temperature than genuine black powder does. 
And that's why. It's not that it's unsafe. It's you just can't get it to ignite. Yeah. Not basically. reliably, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. So we had gone around and we had, you know, who's hunted with a flintlock? And Derek, you're the, you're the odd man out. Hasn't, so, yeah. so I'm curious, is, is it you just haven't had the opportunity or, you know, are you interested in it? Oh, I'm definitely it? interested yeah. in it. It's just it's an opportunity and time deal you know I've, I've been hunting with you know the inline muzzle loader for mm-hmm. quite some years now and I, I keep talking with rick about how one day i'm gonna purchase <laughs> one of these rifles yeah. and, and get into it and um you know you're talking about pennsylvania and their flintlock season i have a couple buddies that live up in pennsylvania and, and for several years i've threatened to go up there and hunt with them but it's just it's it just hasn't happened yet so right. it is just such I, I can't even begin to describe how unique it feels to be out there with one of these during that time period Mm -hmm. there was a time in pennsylvania where i used to dress as a long hunter me too that's the only way i've ever hunted with yeah so um and i try to do that here of course it's not as as cold here in the in the muzzleloader season and when i say here i mean tennessee Mm -hmm. uh as it is in pennsylvania yeah but i love that i just there's just such a romanticism about that for me and and it just takes me back and i just i just love that yeah Um, it's like you get transported back yes you know you're standing there over a turkey you just shot yep and all of a sudden you realize it you get transported back and you're thinking you know if i'd have done this in the 1750s i wouldn't be standing here for the grip and grin i'd be getting this bird and getting in the brush because somebody'd be coming to take my scalp that's exactly right you know so there's just a lot of different nuances oh yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i love the history and all of it yeah that's i mean i just it, it, it's it, calling my name it to is, get into it. Yeah. <laughs> it has, it's addicting. Oh, it yeah. has been one of the most rewarding things that I've ever uh, undertaken is making 18th century guns. And that's, you know, that's my tag name is recreating 18th century Americana. Yeah. And, and uh, I just I just love it. Yeah. My my wife uh, uh, says that I spend too much time in my shop and she's right. I do. <laughs> But I love what I do out there. Well, you know, yeah. they say if you love what you do, you'll you never, never work, work a day, day in your yep. life. That's correct. Yep. 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 We didn't even get into the misnomers about the accuracy of these guns. Oh boy. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. There we could do you know three four different episodes just on myth busting Absolutely. On, on these guns. You, you better know, believe it. Which uh, I, probably I, do a whole other Hollywood episode too. Yes. In relation to yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's a ton to cover on mm-hmm. it, and and I think you know talking about being transported back in time and i think it's so cool you know that that the objects themselves can transport you and rick you were talking or uh, chris <laughs> chris sorry that's all right dave that, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but and chris you were talking about you know even hunting with with the specific historic breeds of the dogs and, mm-hmm. and and i just i just think it's so cool how you know you can add in one little aspect of something right uh, and it really helps transport you to to a whole different uh time period in and of itself and and you can just relive it all uh through a little bit of metal and some wood and and a little bit of fur on a dog and it's just (laughs) it's just so cool it gives me a whole new appreciation for what our forefathers went through uh in the forming of this country and it's just i'm so grateful to play such a smart uh, a, a small role in being able to keep that alive yeah yeah, and there's there's a ton of history in all of it. I mean, there's a ton of history of hunting with dogs. There's a ton mm-hmm. of history of hunting with the flintlocks, and and uh, it's so awesome that you guys are keeping all of that alive. Um, and it's it's very cool. And and if folks are interested in finding more about it, you know, you guys are both on the the Go Wild app, so they can find oh, yeah. Houndsman yep. XP on there. They can find Gobbler Knob Long Rifles on there. Um, 
What were you going to say? Nothing. Oh, uh, <laughs> you look like you had something to say. No. Chris. no. Uh, so, so yeah. So, you know, make sure you, you go into the Go Wild app. You're logging your time uh, listening to this show um, and and follow these guys on the app. And, and we appreciate you tuning in to the podcast here. Uh, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite platform. Uh, leave us some comments, uh, some, some likes and reviews. We appreciate that. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me around the table today. I really today. appreciate it. Well, yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And uh, we will see all of you right here next week on the next episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. Outstanding. <laughs>